Greetings to all my cool cats and cool kittens. They try to copy our style, but they stay frostbitten. From the broadcast to the podcast, it is your man DM Cool. And this is Cool Radio. What we doing? You can catch me on your TV, even on the radio. Pop up at our blog spot, and on my Uwego. We invading airwaves. Yes, yes, y'all. Tell a friend to tell a friend that the pod is now up. It is your man, DM Cool, and this is another edition of Cool Radio. We have quite the show for you all, ladies and gents. We got quite the show. Um, for our mic check segment, I have to, I have to, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't, but I have to talk about, you know, the the passing, the life and times the, the ups, the downs, the struggles, the rises, and just the celebration of the legacy that is Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX. I will devote the entire mic check segment of my broadcast uh, to talk about all of that. That is DMX because he unfortunately left us um, very recently. So I'm definitely going to discuss that. On top of that, uh, what we have on deck for Trip Talk is the release of the series Them and their use of... Black Oppression Through Horror. So I'm going to be talking about that. Um, I'm also going to be talking about the feud that is happening between the ex-lovers that we've known on social media for at least a decade now. And I'm talking about Adam Ali and LaToya Forever because it's been getting pretty spicy in that. So I'm going to discuss that. And I'm going to be discussing Paul Pierce getting fired from ESPN for his um, video of sorts. And funny enough, I was going to make that the wankster of the week, but something else came in where I'm like, ooh, no, 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 no. This is a wankster. So I'll let you guys in on that very shortly. But before we get to all that, you guys already know that I have, you know, a few things to get off my chest each and every week. So on that note, I think it's time that we let that ish breathe. Let this bitch breathe. The thing that's been stewing in my mind for the last week now, I would say, almost two weeks now, I should say, is the lockdown that's currently in effect within Ontario. So this is appealing to all of my Canadian folks, but specifically all to my people in, in, the, in the province of Ontario. Now, for all I know, there could be other provinces across the nation uh, that are going through this as well. And then worldwide, there could be other countries that are going through this as well. But let me talk about my province specifically for a moment, if you don't mind. So the leader of our province, uh, or the premier, as we call it, Doug Ford, uh, he has not only initiated another lockdown that will proceed for another 28 days, but he has also also initiated a curfew or not curfew. Pardon me, not a curfew. No, he he hasn't done that yet. Um, but no, he's initiated a stay at home order. And this was, I think, Thursday 
this past Thursday that he initiated that. Um, this recording is April 10th, 2021, Saturday. Um, and yeah, so he initiated the stay-at-home order. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, isn't the lockdown order, basically the stay-at-home order, the one that you initiated at the beginning of April? Isn't that the same thing? I don't understand. So what happens if we're not home? You know, like what if we're out getting groceries or if we're going for exercise? And this is the thing that I have been very annoyed about and frustrated with when it comes to these lockdown procedures. It's the inconsistency of these procedures as far as what's considered essential and what's considered non-essential. So let's just go through the things that are essential versus non-essential according to their logic. So non-essential, for example, would be going to a gym. And I guess their reasonings is because of the fact that people are within close proximity of one another and we're always touching, you know, equipment and things of that nature. And there's going to be sweat and body fluids around. But my counter argument to that is the fact that people who are within a gym setting are generally spaced out. And this is before social social distancing became a thing. Like people who go to gym have been doing social distancing. It's just a common courtesy thing to do when you're in the gym and you don't want to, you know, impose on somebody's, you know, workout time when they're using particular equipment. And after you're done using said equipment, whether it's a free weight or a machine or whatever the case may be, there are spray bottles and rags available for you to disinfect the area, wipe it down so that the next person can use it without fear of picking up any bacteria or viruses or or anything of the sort. That's been a thing. It's just called common courtesy when it comes to the gym. But no, that's considered a non-essential. Okay. But then the LCBO is considered essential. Now get this. I was having a conversation with somebody about this. And they were telling me that the reason why that the LCBO is considered essential is because that they're afraid, quote unquote, that any alcoholic who has the potential to relapse will not have the liquor store open available for them. So therefore, they are a threat to themselves as far as uh, not be able to live much longer. Hmm. Okay. There are threats to relapse. Okay. So you're basically saying with that logic, and this is not towards the person who told me this information. I'm talking about the government here. You're telling me that with that logic, that the best way to treat an alcoholic is with more alcohol. Wow, that is such a genius idea. Why didn't I think of that? Aw, shucks. Are you fucking serious? So your reasoning, (laughs) hold on. So your reasoning for keeping the liquor store open is so that potential alcoholics or current alcoholics won't go through a relapse once we take away the alcohol. Therefore, it's essential to keep it open so that they 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 can keep on drinking to supplement their addiction. Wow, I th- wow, just when you think you've heard it all. I mean, the smart thing to do, the sensible thing to do, and the helpful and caring and human thing to do would be to take them to rehab so that they don't have to rely on alcohol or any type of substance abuse. Like, if somebody's addicted to sugar, 
Like, let's say they're addicted to candy. Do you give them more candy? No. You take the candy away. If somebody's addicted to gambling, do you take them to Las Vegas? No. You don't take them to anywhere that, that, that incites or encourages gambling. And the same thing comes to an alcoholic. Do you take them to a bar if they're an alcoholic? Do you take them to an alcohol stand when you're going to like a live event? You take them anywhere that doesn't have alcohol anywhere near it. Because the, even the scent of alcohol, just the slightest scent, will, will kick their, their sensations up. But no, we're out here talking about how the LCBO is open because of the fact that we don't want alcoholics to relapse. Therefore, we want to give them an avenue in which they can still be functional by supplementing their addiction with more of what's harming their body. <sighs> Man, this, hmm. it is, I mean, it's I haven't done there, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm putting everything together in my mind right now. Like, put this into perspective. Since the pandemic has started, I think even before the pandemic has started, but let's just, you know, say for sake of argument, March of 2020, up until now, it's been a year. I have yet to set foot in a gymnasium to play basketball indoors. Got a sick pair of Nike Zoom Freak 2 sneakers back in August of 2020. In the Niger colorway. Shout out to my man Giannis Antetokounmpo. And they look shiny. And they, they just look so sleek. And Nigerian. <laughs> and from time to time I, I may wear them out. You know. But mainly I want to use them for indoor use. They're built for outdoor use as well. But I want to use them for indoor use. Because they got quite the bite to them. But the courts are not open. Yet. Somehow. some way. A golf course is not within that that territory of non-essentials. In fact, it's considered essential. Really? How is a convenience, a luxury, if you will, such as a golf court, considered an essential when a very small percentage of the population even has enough money to afford a country club membership in order to play golf at a golf course. It's not like half the population of Oakville is lining up to play golf or have a tea time session at Glen Abbey golf course. Golf courses are basically meant for the rich and elites. They are meant for the 1% of the entire nation. And it's a very small percentage. Hence why we call it the 1%. So if that's the case, then why are we considering this a non-essential, or sorry, why are we considering this an essential? Even if you're just going to like, I don't know if there's anything, if there's such a thing as a basic golf course, or whatever. I don't know. I'm not familiar. I haven't been much of a golfer, but I am quite the, quite the athlete when it comes to mini putt. But why, oh, why is it considered non-essential when you go to a, uh, not a drive-in, but a, a, uh, uh, what's the correct term? Is it a drive? Not drive-by. Definitely not drive-by. Uh, a driving range. There we go. Thank you. Driving range. How is, it, how is it considered essential to go to a driving range? When in the driving range, and I've been to one before, where you literally have to line up one by one, like you're going into like a, like a roller coaster, for example, or a theme park. 
and do your ranges when you're that in, when when you're in cr- close proximity with people. How is that considered essential? And now let's talk about the schools. Most importantly, now education is very important for the young ones. I I will never discredit that. With that said, however, and this is a true statistical fact that I'm about to bring up, but when you have 35% of COVID-related incidences being relayed back to the schools, then don't you think for a second that the schools should be closed? Now, I'm not saying students and teachers shouldn't be interacting in general, like, and by that, I mean virtually. I'm not saying school should be stopped altogether. I'm definitely not saying that. But what I am saying, which I pretty much just said a few seconds ago, is that all schooling should be virtual. And mind you, I do understand that certain children um, have certain uh, learning needs that need to be met. Like some, some, uh, some kids are visual learners. Uh, some kids are, they, they learn by example. So they have to, they have to do it um, right after the teacher does it in order, they, in order for them to understand how, how something is done. I get all that. But in these times that we are in, I think it's important and imperative that we are able to try and teach these kids to adjust their learning styles because there isn't any choice because you look at 35% of COVID related causes or sorry, COVID related cases in Canada or at least in Ontario being due to the fact that kids are passing it on. And because these kids are asymptomatic, we don't know if they have COVID or not until they pass it on to the parents and then boom, they got COVID. What's happening right now is that these politicians within Ontario, at the very least, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but within Ontario, they are basically doing things just to say that they're doing things. So all these lockdowns that they're doing, they're going to look back when it comes to election time and be like, whoa, we had these lockdowns and these numbers went down and these numbers went down. Yeah, but what about the numbers that went up? What about the money that was being spent in, 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 in these initiatives? They're only going to tell one side of the story. And the side that they're going to conveni- conveniently choose to tell is the fact that they had X amount of lockdowns, X amount of lockdowns during the pandemic. Now, of course, you're going to get your people who are going to be anti-maskers and what have you. Fine. But they are a very vocal minority aspect of the population but when we're talking about refusing to close down schools you know school facilities and just reverting to online schooling like strictly but then refusing to do it and then you're refusing to close down gyms that are that are the most sanitary of places but then you choose to keep golf courses open and anything that may benefit the the the, the rich and elite then you're not handling the situation properly. And then even, even the distribution of, of the vaccine can, be, come, can come into question as well. Like how fast are these vaccines coming out? Are the right people 
getting the vaccines first, whether it's elderly people, whether it's people who are of a much lower income, uh, people who lived in more impoverished areas that that may succumb to the uh, to the virus a lot quicker than most. Again, these are things that people need to think about. And another thing, I'd be remiss to say this, but the fact that and this is I this is more of a national thing more than anything. But the fact that when you have Canadians who are coming in from wherever, the UK, America, wherever the case may be, and you have them coming in and you're forcing them to quarantine in hotels for weeks on end where they're spending $2,000 a night out of their own pocket for, for quarantining purposes. One night, okay, sure. And even if it is the one night, not a single dime should be coming out of their pockets. That should be paid for by the government if you really want them to stay in a hotel or let the hotel cover it. And if the hotel wants to charge the government for that, then fine. But it shouldn't be coming out of the pocket of the person who's just coming in. And it's not, it's not like this person's coming in from like spring break from Cancun, girls gone wild. No, it may have been a business trip. It may have been a family emergency. There could be a lot of reasons as to why they had to leave the country and why they have to come back in. Well, they have to come back in because they live here, of course, I'm saying. But regardless, they shouldn't be paying $2,000 a night at a hotel. And the hotels who are doing this, they know they can do it because it's the law for that person in question to be quarantined in a hotel. But for them to charge them $2,000 a night, listen, all you hotel owners who are doing that, you guys ain't shit. You guys are full of shit. You guys should be ashamed of yourselves. You guys are terrible human beings. So I say all this to say, Canadian government and Ontario government in particular, get your shit together. Get your shit together. Now, do y'all agree with me? Do y'all disagree with me? Am I being too extra? Am I being a little too harsh? Or do you feel how I'm knocking? Either way, let me know. You guys already know my socials. Hit me up on those and let's have a discussion about this. Now, the real discussion I want to have. Let's go into our mic check segment. Now, this one comes with a heavy heart because if you've been a fan of hip hop and even just a casual fan of hip hop at the very least for the last 20 to 25 years, give or take, then it comes with a heavy heart that we have to say goodbye to our big dog. We lost our big dog. And I'm talking about Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX. Man, this this one hurts. This one hurts. Like, you never wish bad on anyone or you never just you just never wish the the worst outcome for anyone, regardless of how you feel about them. But there's always this sense of trepidation or fear that we may lose him. Only because of his past addictions with drugs and and you know how you know like will he be close to relapsing anytime soon? Like, is he in the best of care right now? Like, wh- what's the situation? Like, we're always wondering that because we've seen so many influential stars within entertainment, you know, uh, pass on because of you know whether it's drug use or anything of the sort. And unfortunately, you know that was the reported case for DMX. Um, the report came out um, 
sometime last week because I did mention it on Cool Radio last week that he was rushed to the hospital after succumbing to a heart attack, uh, which was the result of an overdose. It was also reported sometime this week um, that as they were examining him uh, while he was in the ICU, that there were traces of COVID-19 in his body. I don't know how legitimate that is. Um, I just saw it from, I just saw a headline on it. I'm not sure if that is 100% accurate. Please fact check me if that is in fact cap. Uh, but I would like to know if that was the case. But if it was the case, then I can see how that would would be another huge impediment to what was already happening to him um, physically. During the time that he was in the hospital, um, his organs were failing and there wasn't any oxygen going into his brain and he was in a vegetative state. Um, so it was at the point where you know, there wasn't much that the physicians could do. So he had his friends and family come by and basically just say their last words to him, you know, and that, and that's tough. He's got kids. He's got young kids. Um, he has his ex-wife who he still had a close relationship with. Uh, he had his current, he current partner, uh, friends and family that grew up with him, people in the music industry that, uh, considered him a friend. Uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of you know the outpour in social media um but mainly because i've kind of stayed away from social media um to to that extent uh but nonetheless there was a large outpour of remorse and sorrow and what have you um but with that said <clears throat> what i want to focus on is not the tragedy of his passing what i want to focus on is the celebration of his career to go down memory lane of his career um, and to celebrate, you know, a lot of the things that he achieved in his career, what his music meant to a lot of people. Some of the things that he was known for being a trailblazer and uh, for groundbreaking and just, you know, just kind of sit with you guys and just reminisce on the legend that was DMX, you know. So let, let's take a trip back down to memory lane and just kind of celebrate the good times and Everything in between that made DMX such a legend, not only within hip hop history, but within music history, as well as the world of entertainment as a whole. So a lot of people don't realize, but back in 1993 is when DMX got his start in music. So he came up as like an underground rapper and he was known as a battle rapper on top of that as well. And he was like one of the best spitters out at out in Yonkers and in, in New York as well. And he was really on the come up. Um, and at some point in time, he crossed paths with um, one of the co-founders of Rough Riders and they were trying to get him a record deal. And also around that time, they crossed paths with uh, Irv Gotti, who was at the time, he was managing uh, a young Ja Rule. And he was just making his moves in the industry as well as like a, as a producer, as an A&R of sorts. He wasn't officially an A&R, but he had a really good eye for talent. Like the same way Diddy had an eye for talent, Irv was a man who had eye for talent as well. A lot of people don't know that Irv was responsible for, of course, getting Ja Rule his record deal um, right when he made right, right when Ja Rule became like a solo artist after being with Cash, Cash Money Click. Um, not the one from New Orleans. It was a different one. And then also he helped Jay-Z get his record deal at Def Jam as well, which is why they had a relationship. Uh, but also 
He was responsible for getting DMX a record deal at Def Jam and was also responsible for putting those three into a group that never really materialized, a super group of sorts called Murder, Inc., which I'll get to later on. But nonetheless, I digress. So now DMX is starting to make his runs, you know, in the in in the underground and to, to a certain extent mainstream circuit. So one of the first placements he had was with uh, Mace. So he appeared on a record called 24 Hours to Live, and that featured Mace, Black Rob, The Locks, and, of course, DMX himself. And speaking of The Locks, he appeared on a record from The Locks entitled Money, Power, Respect, which is which was on their debut album in 1997. That featured The Locks, of course, Little Kim, and DMX. And then probably his biggest feature before his album came out was on a record called 4321. And that record has some heavyweights, as if the other ones didn't. But these ones were like solidified heavyweights. So you had LL Cool J. You had Method Man. You had Red Man. You had Master P. And then at the time, you had an up-and-coming cannabis. So you basically had a a record, a posse record that had two up-and-coming artists, um, a very underrated artist in Master P, but still had the credentials. Uh, you had Red Man, who was one of the most popular artists at the time. Method Man, who was by far the most popular artist out of the Wu-Tang Clan, which is another popular act that we already know. And then LL Cool J, who was like a certified veteran in the game and was considered one of the greatest of all time at that point. So he had a pretty good start. You know, all things considered. And then 1998. 1998 is when it all began. It all began. It all began. 1998 is when he set the world ablaze and he set it on fire. A lot of people were asking, yo, who is this DMX guy? Or, yeah, I've heard about DMX. Um, He was like, you know, this underground rapper. Man, listen. This guy made history when he when he dropped, okay? When he dropped, he made history. Like, a lot of people were bragging about how vicious this guy was on the mic, his gruff voice, and just everything was so anti-establishment as far as what he was doing versus what everyone else was doing in the industry. And he let his he let his presence be known on his debut album, which was It's Dark and Hell is Hot. That was his debut album, and it was an amazing album, to say the least, to say the least. Um, And he first came out with the record Rough Riders Anthem, and that alone made Rough Riders one of, like, the most standout cliques, factions, crews in hip-hop history. Um... And that was a glorious time during hip hop during that late 90s, early 2000s period, because as far as crews and factions, what have you, you know, before the days of Top Dog Entertainment, before MMG, before G-Unit, hell, even before Dipset, you had Rough Riders, you had Rockefeller, and you had Murder, Inc. And all three of them 
had connections to Def Jam in some sort of way. Rockefeller and Murder Inc. were directly under Def Jam. I believe DMX was the only artist from Def Jam that, or sorry, the only artist from Rough Riders that was on Def Jam. Def, um, Rough Riders is more Interscope, but they're all interconnected with Universal. But anyways, I digress. So he debuts with that album, and it sold massive numbers. And if that wasn't enough, I mean, mind you, like the guy went four times platinum on on a debut album, almost five times platinum. Four four point eight million copies to be exact that were sold. That's insane for a debut artist. Never mind. I mean, let alone rap. I should be saying. But mind you, nineteen ninety eight was a very profitable year for hip hop. One of the best years hip hop has ever seen financially because everybody was selling. It didn't matter if you're in the mainstream or not. Everyone was selling. But nonetheless, for a debut artist to go, mind you, he didn't sell four point eight million in one week, whatever. But nonetheless, to to, to have that certification, like, that was amazing. And if that if that wasn't crazy enough, this guy released another album that year, with the same year. And it was in 19, again, 1998, when he released, um, he released uh, uh, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. That album sold crazy numbers as well, 3.5 million units sold. So you went three times platinum. So you went four times platinum in May of 1998. Or mind you, sorry, it, he didn't go platinum right at that exact time. But what I'm trying to say is, sorry, I, I'm getting excited talking about DMX here. Um, you you go you you release a fire album in May, critically acclaimed and sold a shit ton of units, and then later that year you give people more heat in December. With your second album. No sophomore slump to speak of whatsoever. And both of those albums eventually end up going four times and three times platinum respectively. Like, insane. Absolutely insane. Like, you have to respect him. And everybody was singing his songs, man. Like, you couldn't go anywhere without singing his records. I mean, come on. Rough, like, Rough Riders Anthem. Uh, party, part, party Up. Oh my god, like there's so many to go through. So many to go through. Oh man, what's my name? What they really want? <clears throat> See, I'm just I'm getting excited right now. I'm getting excited. And uh, sorry, I'm getting excited. Let me let me continue and then I'll go on later on I'll go on and explain why he was one of my favorite rappers ever and then also my favorite rapper at that point in time. But anyways, let me keep on going because I don't I don't I don't want this to go for too long. Um but yeah. He released two albums within the same year, his first two albums in the same year, and he became like an instant household name immediately. Like it it took little to no time for for him to 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 reach those heights. And then, you know, you talk about in 1999, he released another uh, an, another album which is entitled And Then There Was X. That album actually outsells eventually outsells his first two albums he goes uh he goes uh, four times platinum on that he sold 4.9 million units uh of that album like he basically went five times platinum on that if we're, if we're to be completely honest all right so that was in 1999 and then we have the great depression which was released in 2001 and again that album sells it didn't sell as much as um his first three albums he he went about it was one time platinum about 1.8 million units 
you know, wasn't that much of a of a return in comparison to his first three efforts. But it is what it is. You know, you can't always, you know, bat a thousand. But nonetheless, X was still a household name at that time. And in 03, he comes out with Grand Champ. That was in September of 2003. He goes one. He goes uh, platinum, sells about 1.2 million copies of that. And then in 2006, he releases um, his album entitled uh, Year of the Dog. And this would be the last time where he would top the charts. This was back in 2006, and he goes gold on it. By that time, that album basically, or sorry, not uh, by, the, by that time, not the album start, but by that time, Rap was in a completely different spot at that time. Um, the the landscape had completely changed. Uh, I think Jay Z by that time was the president of Def Jam Records. Um, but yeah, so much had happened, and he wasn't the selling force that, that he once was. But nonetheless, like that run that he had was legendary. Very few could even duplicate that. And what made DMX stand out um, as a rapper was. I mean, there's a lot of things. So first of all, his image, his image, just tall. Well, I don't know how tall he was, but like he was very cut, uh, dark skin, the bald head. The bald head was a thing back in the 90s. Um, and then also just that that rough, gritty, raspy tone uh, intonation that he had within his voice and the way he was able to use it and ex- accentuate it within his rhymes. Even when he was harmonizing, like you still felt, you know, the um, the pain that was in it. You felt the the emotion that was in it, and DMX was a very emotional rapper, a very emotional rapper. And I don't mean that as a as a as a way of disrespect or anything like that. I'm saying that he was able to convey his emotions to the point to the point where the crowd, the audience, felt exactly what he was saying, and they connected with him on that level. You're talking about a rapper who was very open about a lot of the issues that were going on within his life, whether at that time or back in the day. Uh, somebody who was very vocal about how he's had to battle so many demons. Uh, somebody who was very open about uh, expressing his mental health uh, on a record. And I said this last week, uh, I said how he was one of the pioneers in discussing mental health. He just didn't put the name mental health on it, but he was very open in discussing that. Um, I would say when it comes to rappers, at least, you know, uh, from the 90s, who were very open and upfront about discussing, you know, their their mental state on a record, numerous times within a record, <clears throat> in no particular order, would be him, Tupac, uh, Nas, especially if you're talking about Illmatic, a teenager t- talking about all the things that he has seen, you know, within their records. But nonetheless, Nas... Um, Scarface, definitely Scarface, Biggie, I mean, he had an album entitled Ready to Die, <laughs> let's be honest, um, and yeah, like, those are just, like, f- the first five names that come to mind, to be honest, when, when we're talking about rappers who are very expressive about talking about their mental health and what have you, and I feel like he made that socially acceptable for the current crop of rappers who are out now, whether they realize it or not, and then as far as the style goes, I think the closest comparison that you have before after X was probably Tupac. In fact, he did get a lot of comparisons to Tupac because of not just the image of him with the shirt off and the bald head, sometimes with a bandana on his head, but also because of how intense and how raw he was. I think the main difference between him and Tupac was the fact that Tupac had, you could say that Tupac had multiple personalities and he had 
uh, multiple layers to him where you could have the smooth and sexy Tupac. You could have the brash in your face Tupac. You could have the sentimental Tupac, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas DMX, he was always raw, untapped, unrefined, and would give you his raw emotions in any context or settings without even, you know, switching up the, the, the tone to a certain extent. I mean, the song, What They Really Want, you know, uh, or sorry, uh, you know, What These Bitches Want. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's the name of the record. Um, he's still pretty intense with the delivery uh, of, of that record, even though that record is more for it's more for the women's. It's more of a club anthem for the for the women and all that. Like even when he's rattling off the names, Amanda, Ranisha, Tanika, Keisha, like he's still being intense. You know what I mean? Like as if he's going into a battle, but it's just like that's just him. And like nobody can du- duplicate that. I haven't heard any rapper since DMX that had that has that type of emotion and and <clears throat> pardon me and effect. I, I can't think of any rapper that's come after him since since him. I, I really can't. I'm not trying to stand for him when I say that. But it, you'd be remiss to to find me a rapper who came out maybe during the 2000s or even during the 2010s who kind of had that style to him. I know there are rappers who have come out since him who were inspired by him. Like I know Machine Gun Kelly at one point in time said that he was inspired by DMX. I don't see DMX in him. Maybe that's because I don't listen to enough of his music, but he has openly said that DMX was one of his idols growing up and what have you. Um, But yeah, he he was definitely one of a kind. Um, And then, yeah, going back to what I was mentioning earlier with him and Jay-Z and Ja Rule linking up. They were they could have been one of the first supergroups in rap. Uh, mind you, the first supergroup in rap was the firm, which featured Nas AZ and Foxy Brown and Cormega. But they could they easily could have been the next. Um, now, would they be a supergroup technically? I mean, I feel like a supergroup, you have to at least have one album under your belt before that could be a thing. But I guess in hindsight, when you look at the names who are involved, Jay-Z. Ja Rule, DMX, they were heavy hitters during the night during the late nineties and going into the um, early to mid two thousands, and they had a group in mind called Murder Inc. And Murder Inc., as we all know, would would later turn into the label Murder Inc., which would be headlined by Ja Rule. But yeah, they were at one point in talks of doing um, a collaboration together, a collaboration product, a project of sorts. And they had a few uh, tracks together, including the infamous record known as It's Murder, where it just sounded like a very raw freestyle, where they're all just going in and spitting bars. Like, it was heavy. Uh, it was great. And that's just what the people wanted to see. But they could never really make, make, make it come to fruition because... DMX and Jay-Z had a long-standing rivalry with one another. And that was the next point that I'm going to get into right now, actually. So with Jay-Z and DMX, they had a rivalry with one another because um, there were some unrecorded, or I wouldn't say unrecorded, but there, there were some non-fully recorded freestyle battles that happened between the two, if that makes any sense. So... This happened in multiple times, I, I believe, where they would freestyle against each other. And sometimes they would do it on tour as well. Um, I think Def Jam had a major tour back then. I think it was, it was a Hard Knock Life tour back in like 1998, 1999, around that time period. And it wasn't just Rockefeller, but it was like a lot of the Def Jam artists that were a part of that tour as well. And I think DMX was one of them. And it was a huge, huge tour. And basically, 
in the in the back rooms and what have you, where they would be getting ready for a show or they had just finished performing and what have you, they would just freestyle against each other. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall or just be a part of that 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 crowd that was in the dressing room at that time to watch those two go at it. Because you're talking about a clash of styles. You're talking about in one corner, you have Jay-Z, somebody who's known for manipulating wordplay, somebody who can come up with double and sometimes triple entendres, uh, somebody who is an acrobat at flipping metaphors and similes and just has like this um, smooth rhythmic cadence to him to a certain extent. Super laid back with a, a confident swagger about him. But then you have DMX, someone who is loud and abrasive, in your face, direct with, the, with, the, with, with his lyrics. He's not one for flipping words or anything like that, but he's direct with what he says. And it's his, it's his aggressive delivery that gives what he says much more emphasis. And even just his ad-libs, like the, the grunts, all that stuff. You know, like that intimidation factor is huge in a rap battle. You know what I mean? Like that's 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 an X factor right there. No pun intended. <laughs> but definitely it's 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 a huge thing to to put in there as an intangible. And so when you have that juxtaposition of 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 tactics that they would use, it makes for it makes for a great bout. As they say in boxing, styles make clashes or or sorry, or is it uh, styles make fights rather? I would have loved to have been in that room to see those two titans go at it like that. That would have been a treat to see. But the only people who know are the people who were in that room that day, whether it was Swiss Beats, Damon Dash, who knows? That would have been a treat to see. Absolutely. Now, not only was Ja Rule famous with the music, of course, but this guy is famous in movies. In movies. When I tell you that DMX had the best like first year out of anyone in rap, it's not hyperbole for me to say that. It's not, because this guy had an amazing first year in rap. No one can tell me any different. Nobody at all. I would be challenged. I, I sorry, I challenge anyone to tell me what rapper had a better year had a, a better first year in in the uh entertainment industry as far as crossing over into films very few people very few the first movie that this man ever starred in was in a cult classic film called belly he was a co-star alongside nas and it was directed by Hype Williams and co co-written by Hype Williams and Nas. And again, that movie became a cult classic for for hip hop fans because it was one of the few times where we saw rappers writing the screenplay to a film. Mind you, Cuba has already done that. Cuba had already done that by the time Friday came out. He had already done that. But again, one of the few times that uh, we've seen that. But on top of that, I think it was the first time that a music video director directed a a a, a Hollywood film. Now, maybe my memory doesn't serve me correct, but I don't remember Belly ever being in theaters in Canada. America, of course. 
but I don't remember it being in theaters in Canada because I would have known about that. I if it was DMX at that time, we're talking about 1998. I'm probably in the fifth grade at this time, and I'm a movie buff. I would have known about that. I saw Rush Hour the same year. I knew about that immediately. Immediately. But even if it was in Canada at that time, I probably would have been able to see it because it's definitely rated R. Definitely rated R. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna share a fun story with you guys. Um, so back when I was a kid, I used to see a lot of movies with my dad. We used to go to the theaters. And back in the day, the theater, the theater that we used to go to was called Famous Players. They don't have that anymore. It actually got... Uh, bought out by a company called Cineplex Odeon. For all my Canadians listening, if you know, you know. All right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, whenever a new movie came out, this is the fun thing right here. And a lot of people who were born like after like 2005 who are listening, you don't know about these ones. All right. You don't know about these ones. So if you want to find out the exact time a movie was playing in the exact location, you would have to crack up the phone book. Those did exist back in the day, <laughs> but you'd have to crack open the phone book, you know, the, the good old yellow pages, and you would have to look for the famous players that you're looking for that's within your location. Then you dial that number. They, they, they run through a list of the, all the movies that they have in theaters at this point in time. You press whatever number for the movie that you're looking for. And then you would have to listen to all the times, the, the, the run times that they have for the movie. So if the time plays at 540, 620, 730, etc., etc. And then they would tell you the, the rating of the movie as well. Um, and I remember at this time, I wanted to go see, around this time I should say, around this time, I wanted to go see Romeo Must Die. Because again, another movie that features DMX. But that movie had everyone in there. Jet Li, Aaliyah, DMX, Delroy Lindo, Isaiah Washington, Anthony Anderson. Yo, that movie was crazy. Because you guys know me. I love hip-hop and I love martial arts. And when you put the two together, I am sold. I will buy all stocks in that regard. All right? So... I remember I wanted to see that movie so badly. I wanted to see it so badly. And back in the day, there used to be a rating called AA, which stood for adult accompaniment, meaning that it was just a stronger version of PG-13. You can see the movie as long as you have a parent with you. Like, for example, the South Park movie, the first ever South Park movie, had an, had an AA rating. That movie, for all intents and purposes, should have been rated R, but it wasn't. And usually I got away with this shit. But Romeo Must Die was rated R. It was rated R. And I was hoping, you know, I could still go to the theaters with my dad to go see it. So we went. And he, 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 my dad said, two tickets for Romeo Must Die. The patron looked at us. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't give you those tickets because he's too young. The movie's rated R. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So we went back home. I was all disheveled. I was so upset. I was so angry. But then months later, it was available for rental, and I rented the fuck out of that movie. And by the time it was available for, you know, home release and DVD and all that stuff, I bought that, like, Christmas of that year, and I rewatched it over and over and over again for the entire Christmas break. 
because I love that movie so much. But I digress. I digress. That, that's one of my favorite appearances from DMX, even though it was like maybe like 10 minutes of screen time. But that was the first movie I ever saw him in, which is why it holds a special place in my heart. But then he came out, <coughs> pardon me, he came out with other movies like Exit Wounds uh, with him featuring Steven Seagal and then Cradle to the Grave. Him and Jet Li were together. Never Die Alone, which personally is my favorite film from DMX because he was front and center. He wasn't sharing the screen with, with anyone. And it showed that he could carry a movie on his own. And it was really, I really liked the way, maybe I'm looking at it with rose colored glasses, but I really liked the way how it seemed like uh, a document, not a documentary of sorts, but the way it played out, it was a documentation on his life, like his life as the character that he is portraying, of course, which was, I think it was a, a hitman or a drug dealer or something like that. And it was done through tape recordings. Uh, and somebody was listening to these tape recordings trying to figure out a crime or a murder that took place. I think they're trying to figure out his murder or whatever the case may be from what I remember. But it was a really good movie. Really good movie. I That's my personal favorite from him. But then there are other movies that he's in that I don't even recognize, to be honest. like I, I don't think these movies made it into theaters, which is probably why I don't recognize them. So he was in a movie. He was in other movies uh, like Last Hour, for example, uh, Lockjaw, Lords of the Streets, Death Toll, Death Race. There was a... Or sorry, Fast and Fierce, Death Race. Um, and then he was even in a movie with Steven Seagal once again called Behind the Law. So I never knew about these films. But I think it's because of the fact that they were released straight to DVD. And this also, and they also came out by the time DMX wasn't really a household name anymore. So I was like, huh, that is interesting. That is interesting. Maybe I might check out these movies, you know, um, when I have the time. But I just thought that was interesting. I just really thought that was interesting. But yeah, he made his name relevant within films as well. And during that period, late 90s, early 2000s, when I was in middle school, he was my legit favorite. Pardon me, my my favorite rapper. He was my legit favorite rapper. Um, I also liked Ja Rule at the time. I also liked Jay-Z at the time. Um, I wasn't really banging uh, a bump in Nas at that point in time. Maybe... Up until maybe until Still Maddox. Still Mag was when I got back into Nas after kind of being a fan of his in the mid 90s, just kind of seeing Nas and videos and stuff like that. Um, but when I really started getting serious about rap music and stuff like that, that's when, you know, I, I kind of parlayed into that. But that's all. But DMX, to his credit as well, is one of the main reasons why, you know, I started to study, uh, st- started to study rap music in terms of not not only in terms of how people write their lyrics and what lyrics they're writing, but how they deliver them as well. And I started studying uh, his his content a lot more in that regard. Um, but yeah, he was a big part as to why I want to start studying rap um, and start to immerse myself more so into the culture as well. So that's something that I really owe DMX a lot of gratitude for. Um, but yeah, he meant a lot to me growing up. He meant a lot. Um, I remember a lot some of the records that dealt with like pain and loss and what have you. I would listen to those records if I had, you know, moments, moments, pardon me, of vulnerability where I felt lost or I felt like, you know, people didn't accept me for who I was and stuff like that. And why people would always have to make fun of me just for me being different and what have you. And when I think back to a record like Slippin', 
oh man, that record touched my soul as a youth, as a as a 13, 14 year old who's still trying to find his identity as far as who he wants to be and how he wants people to receive uh, receive him. Um, mind you, that record came out maybe a few years before uh, a few years. Uh, bef- uh, before I got into high school, so I was going back into the into the trunk, so to speak, and listening to that record. And that record spoke to me a lot. Like even to this day, I remember going back and watching the versus battle between him and, and Snoop Dogg, and he was performing "Slipping," and like that's when I I lost my shit. I was vibing. I turned up the volume on my laptop, I was like, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I can't get up, and you know, I'm slipping, I'm falling, I got to get up, oh my god, like, ugh, they just, I, I'm having chills right now, just even seeing him in the zone, it's like he never, he, he never lost a step, you know, and that's the X that I love to see, that's the X that I love to see, but yeah, man, he helped me get through, like, a lot of rough times, I mean, any anytime you need to listen to somebody who's gone through some shit, you gotta listen to X. And this is somebody who has a fascinating story, even outside of rap. I mean, you're talking about somebody whose father was never there when he was a child. But then in most situations where the mother gives him, gives their child all the nurturing that they need, his mom never gave him that. His mom never never gave him that at all. He was he was very close to his grandmother, but unfortunately, his grandmother passed away. <clears throat> but then his mom, for whatever reason, never gave him that same love back. And whenever he was, and because of that, he was always acting out. And I guess she couldn't handle that, so she dropped him off at a group home. And it's like, how are you not going to give that love to your child? Like that child came from you. That, that child came from your body, your womb, and you can't even give him that, that nurturing that he needs? Why? Like, I've never understood that. And I would be, I'm almost curious to, like, I've low-key been curious to find out why his mother never wanted him around. I mean, is it one of those complexes where he's so much like the, the father in, in certain aspects or he's the spitting image of the father and you and the father never got along and it's one of those things where you just say oh you're just like your father it's like you can't put that on him he's a kid he's trying to find himself he's trying to figure himself out and so he ends up growing up in a group home and then you know certain individuals whom he called his friends so people that he trusted at the age of 14 laced up his weed with with what was a crack or angel dust or whatever the case may be and that's what started his addiction to drugs. And it's just like there's so much shit that he had to battle and endure. And just everything was just one constant uphill battle after another. Even when he got the success of being a multi-platinum rapper and, and being a, uh, a blockbuster Hollywood actor, he was still trying to fight his demons, man. And it, it, I, it, I feel for him. Like I, I always felt for him. It's like... Even with all the money and fame, he still couldn't catch a break. And that's not to say that everything was all gloom and doom. I'm sure he had wonderful moments, wonderful highlights that, that exceed beyond the music. I mean, him bringing children into his life, him, you know, finding a love to, to call his own, um, just him surrounding himself with with uh, people that he considers you know family and what have you, uh, regardless of blood. 
but just all those hardships that he had to endure. Ah, man, it's tough. It's really tough. But it's those demons that he had to endure that make that make me admire him that much more because of how long he fought. And he fought, I, in my opinion, he fought to the bitter end. I really think that he did fight to the bitter end, regardless of how he died. But, you know, nonetheless, where he stands in, you know, rap history and what have you, he's one of the greatest of all time, even before his death. Like that eight year run that he had from 98 to 2006, that was enough for me to solidify his spot in hip hop history. I've always regarded DMX as somebody, you know, objectively speaking, being somewhere within the top 10, the top 15 of rap, you know, just as what he's done for rap, where he's taken it, the style that he created for himself, the the, the niche that he created for himself. I mean, you got to remember, he came out all uh rough and rugged at a time where rap was trying to be all bling blingy and jiggy jiggy and stuff like that right and that's no diss to anyone who was a part of that era but he's somebody who deviated away from all that stuff and he still he still sold records you know how hard it is to do to stay true to a style that you call your own that deviates away from the mainstream and still sell Man, you gotta give your you gotta give your props to him, and the way he was able to connect with crowds during live performances. There were times where I saw him cry, just show tears and emotion, and and there would be times where he, like he would pray to you know he would say like a sermon to the audience. I don't know, I, I mean, who knows if the entire crowd was like Christian or whatever. But like regardless, they all felt it. They all felt it. They they all connected with him regardless of of you know the race or their religious backgrounds or whatever. You he was still able to connect. But he def- he's definitely regarded in top 10, top 15 all time in hip hop history, regardless of his death. And I know, especially within hip hop, the culture likes to do this thing where when somebody dies, their place in hip hop automatically jumps up to like five spots. We've seen this with and I mean, no disrespect when I say this, but if I'm to be truthful, we've seen this with Big Pun. We've seen this with Big L. Um, we've seen this with with Biggie. We've seen this with a lot of artists. And to what I would say is a lot of these artists, they didn't have the time to create more than three albums. And to say that they are now within the top 10 of greatest rappers of all time, to me, is disingenuous because of the fact that there are artists who are living that that are still walking this earth, who are still making who are still making albums, who have made history during the prime of their career. And and you're and you want them to share space was somebody who was who had who didn't get to reach the peak of their abilities or maybe did but doesn't have the body of work to show for it. This is why I can never rate Big L as one of the top 10 greatest rappers of all time because there's only one album that he made during his lifetime. This is why I can't give that mantle to someone like Big Big Pun because of the fact that he only made one or two albums during his lifetime. Granted, he did have a, a major influence within the Latino community as being the first platinum rapper from a Latino background and opened the doors for Latino rappers going forward. I, I respect that. But I wouldn't give him a top 10 all-time placement for that. Biggie, on the other hand, I would give him top 10 for sure, top five possibly, but not the greatest rapper of all time. And simply because of the fact that, once again, not enough albums within this body of work. But his style did influence a lot of rappers. His presence did. Um, where he raid, where what he did for East Coast rap during the mid '90s w- was a huge, was a huge accomplishment. 
And both of his albums were classic bodies of work. So I get the influence that he had. I get the, the, the strength of the body of work that he had. But to call him the greatest rapper of all time, I mean, if that's the case, then isn't that a referendum on, on, on rap itself? The fact, doesn't that say, you know, logically speaking, that we haven't advanced? If we're calling somebody who died during the, I guess, the up-and-coming stages of rap music, if he's the greatest of all time, then what does that show about where the music has gone since then? And I think that's a disservice to people like Nas, people like Jay-Z, who have done so much for rap since the death of those rappers. So respectfully, you know, bringing it, bringing it back to DMX, I would say that, you know, DMX is definitely somewhere in the top 10, 15, at the very least uh, in the, within the top 20 of greatest rappers of all time because of what he was able to do during his prime as a rapper. I'll definitely give him that. And one final thing that I'll say about DMX uh, before we switch things to uh, the next topic. Yesterday, <clears throat> I went out for a run. And this was hours after I found out about his death. And I was already planning on, you know, going through a DMX playlist during my workout routine and stuff like that. But finding out that he died shortly thereafter, I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm working extra hard today for my workout routine so i'm going for my run and it's uh it's about a 7k run and usually on the last leg of 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 my run like i get a bit lethargic because i'm gassed out at that point obviously and what have you but then his record one of the last big records that he that he came out with before his star power (coughs) pardon me before his star power started to decline uh was called uh, Lord, give me a sign. And so that record starts playing and I'm supposed to be gassed out and lethargic at this point. But for whatever reason, I don't know if DMX was yelling at me from behind, like, like, keep it up, nigga. Keep it. I don't know. Like, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> but I just got like this extra burst of energy when that record came on. That particular record. You know what I mean? Because like that record is about him trying to fight against his demons and and trying to find the strength to, to to push on and what have you. So I think, you know, intrinsically that motivated me to to, you know, kind of push on despite how tired my body was and everything. It's like, nah, man, you you got you got to complete this last run for X, man. The X fought to the to the very end. You got to do the same thing. So I, I pushed I I pushed like i didn't sprint obviously but like i damn well should have sprinted if that was the case like i tried my best to like kind of put in that extra boost of energy it was like a half sprint at most it wasn't like i was going at full zoom but like it wouldn't wouldn't have been the normal pace that i would have been going at the entire time but nonetheless i found that little bit of energy to just kind of push through and man when I when I got back home, I was tired, but at the same time, I felt accomplished because like I was able to push that last bit, and you know that was DMX kicking me in my backside, saying to push harder. Um, but yeah, man, just to close off the segment, uh, DMX is one of the greatest of all time, easily. There's there's no question about it. If we're talking about greatest rappers of all time, he's in that conversation. If we're talking about one of the greatest entertainers of all time. The fact that he's able to cross over between music and film, and he's one of the most influential 
rap or music artists, let alone rappers, who was able to do that during his lifetime. There's no question that he's one of the greatest to ever do that. And he's definitely a pioneer for promoting um, mental health as far as talking about it heavily with it within the music and what have you. He's definitely a pioneer about that. And there's no question about that as well. Uh, so honestly, I wish I, I had the opportunity to to meet DMX. It never happened. Um, but regardless, I regardless of that. I felt like I knew him because of the music. And I feel like a lot of us who are fans of his music felt like we got to know him because of the fact that we were able to connect with his music in some form or fashion. So in honor of Earl Simmons, a.k.a. DMX, thank you for blessing us with your presence. Thank you for blessing us with your music. And thank you for opening up your heart to us so that we could feel who you are as a person away from the music, as well as within the music. You will never be forgotten. You will always be missed. And you will always be appreciated. To our fallen soldier and to our big dog, Earl DMX Simmons. Rest in power. All right, so let's move on to our next segment, which is Trip Talk. So that's three of the hottest topics that took place in pop culture and music. And with that said, let's get into it. So our first topic I have is by way of a TV series that just got released, which is entitled Them. Now, Them, I believe, is produced by Jordan Peele or, sorry, it, uh, no, Lena Waithe is the... See, I get confused. I think Lena Waithe is the director of it, but I think Jordan Peele is a producer of it, or I could be getting it mixed up. Please fact check me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, but nonetheless, it is yet another um, horror project that has black people as the main stars of the show, but then it also has the element of race and oppression as serving as the element of horror within this. So we saw that with Get Out. And when Get Out did that, it was innovative. It hadn't really been done, hadn't really been done like that before. And it related to a lot of the ills that you know black people face when it comes to confronting white people and racism. So I, it was big for that. But then, you know, you had a a few more projects that came out afterwards as far as you know depicting, you know, black oppression with horror. And my thing is and I'm not trying to trash the show in any way, shape, or form because I haven't seen it. So I'm not here to judge the show based on its writing or anything like that. Um, but my thing is, when it comes to a black horror sh- movie or TV show, whatever the case may be, why is it that we have to use black plight and black trauma and black oppression to accentuate the horror element? I mean, those are already real life elements that we're already scared of. So why does it have to be a thing where 
we have to emphasize that within the fictional piece in order to connect with the black audience. Why can't it just be, you know, like you're watching uh, Scream or Amityville Horror or Saw or something like that? Why does that have to play on the trauma of a black individual? This is one of the reasons why I was never really a big fan of Lovecraft Country. And mind you, I saw Lovecraft Country from start to finish. And I got excited about it because of the fact that we saw or what appeared to be like a horror sci-fi film or sorry, series rather, but with black people in it. And that's something I've never really seen as far as like black people being like the main cast members. I'm like, okay, I'm not a huge horror fan, but I do like me some sci-fi and there's black people in it that I've never really seen. And I rarely ever see rather uh, black people in a sci-fi setting. So let me check this out. But then it turns out being, you know, a black family being in the Jim Crow era and having to face racism. And then they use the metaphor of racial inequality with some of the horrific themes that they're showing within the within the series. So not only are they having to, to face demons and, and, and things of that nature, but they also got to face off against racist white people. I mean, like, throw them a fucking bone for, for, for goodness sakes, right? And then even, you know, within, like, the previews I'm seeing for them, it's like, okay, they have to face off against, you know, racist people in the 1950s. But then they also have these... Well, like racist spirits that are haunting them. Like I see like a like a Jigaboo character, you know, haunting somebody's dreams and stuff like that. I'm seeing all these racist like um, uh, uh, menstrual show voodoo dolls on, on their front lawn. I'm like, what's what's going on here? Why can't they why can't they just be scared of the same shit that white people are scared of? And like all these other fantastical horror movies. Why is that? Why do we have to add the element of race to it? And I'll say this, I don't mind, in, in some aspects, I don't mind race being added as an element in the movie or show, as long as it adds to the narrative of the story being told. But if that is the entire narrative, you know, especially if you're talking about a horror show or, or, or movie, then it's like, why are, we, why, why are we once again reminded of where we are in the world? Why are we once again reminded that we're still oppressed? Why are we reminded that that we don't matter? Why are we reminded that we are giving that we are not given the benefit of the doubt in any situation where we are either shot, killed or accosted in some way by by the authorities? Why? I can go on CNN or MSNBC or go on any of my social media timelines and see that for myself in real life and in living color. Why am I seeing that in a form of escapism that I want to go and retreat to? Now, I get it. Art imitates life. I get that. I'm a big proponent of that. But art is also what you want to make it to be. You as a creator have the ability to to paint whatever narrative that you want because it's your work of art. Some people may agree. Some people may disagree as far as what they're viewing. But it's still your art that you can create. Like, to this day, I'll be completely honest with you guys. To this day, I have yet to see projects such as 12 Years a Slave. I have yet to see Selma. I have yet to see see The Hate You Give. 
I have yet to see um, uh, the one from Ava DuVernay. What is the name of that one? Uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. But it was it was the one about th- these black teens who got accused of a crime of some sort. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was a limited series on Netflix. But nonetheless, I haven't seen that one either. Um, yeah, there's quite a bit that I haven't seen. And Queen and Slim would have been part of that that rollout had it not been for one of my friends who really wanted me to watch it so I can get my opinion on it. And it's like, spoiler alert, but both Queen and Slim end up getting killed by the police. You literally didn't have to watch the movie to find out that that was how, how it ended. And it's like, what do you expect? Yeah, the girl's a lawyer. So fucking what? She's a, she's a black person who who killed a cop. I think it was Kaluuya's character, Slim, who killed the cop. But regardless, you're an accessory to the crime, even if the cop did shoot you. They're going to look at the cop as the hero and you as the black, dark-skinned individual as the villain. Like, I didn't need to watch that in order to find that out. I really didn't. And I'm just in the mental space where I'm tired of seeing black oppression movies. I'm tired of seeing, you know, gangbang movies. I'm tired of seeing Let's Go Save the Rec Center dance movies. I'm tired of seeing toxic romantic movies. And of course, I'm just tired of the Ty Perry shit. Give me movies with black people in them, whether it's a majority black cast or if it's a black uh, actor within a lead role in a universal cast where race isn't necessarily the object of the story. This is why I love the movie Creed, because Creed was about a young man who was trying to get out of his father's shadow and become the boxer that he was destined to be. Creed is easily the best movie out of out of or sorry not one of sorry not not the best but it's one of the best out of the whole rocky series or rocky universe whatever you want to call it it's like top three creed one in particular this is why i like a movie like sorry to bother you because you're talking about you know uh a guy who works in the uh in the office space and he is, he works in sales, and he talks about some of the bullshit that you have to do in the corporate environment within within the sales space. I can relate to that. You know, this is why I like a movie like Black Panther because you have a superhero who is black. You have the majority of characters who are black and who are strong in their own right and have different thoughts. Like no one person in that film is a monolith. And they exemplify that perfectly. And I like it for other reasons, but just for those general reasons. So I say all this to say that as black creators and as black actors, you can do so much more than the typical I'm a slave movie. The the, the so typical um, I'm in a toxic relationship and I'm going to say the most nasty things about my partner in my life. But guess what? We're going to kiss and make up and just go back to doing what we're doing and we'll probably argue again because that is an example an exact uh, representation of black love the fuck it ain't i ain't watching that shit you can do so much more black creators and, and actors please challenge the status quo do more and do better
Because as black viewers, we deserve to see representation of ourselves that hasn't really been seen before. And I believe that we've gotten a lot more of that in the last decade, which I would like to call the new black renaissance. So let's continue that momentum. Let's continue that into the 2020s. Because the people coming up deserve to see that. But hey, I might be completely off base with what I'm saying. What do you people think? Y'all hit me up on my social media apps, if you will, and let me know because I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Let's get into Latoya Forever versus Adam Ali. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, Latoya Forever made her name as a popular YouTuber from Toronto. She got popularity by doing her own vlogs on her YouTube channel and just uh, doing some comedic skits here and there. But then she increased her popularity when um, she got together with Adam Ali, who kind of had his own YouTube thing going on at that time. And then they started dating and then they eventually became a couple, got married, had kids and what have you. So started doing more family vlog related things. So they were doing that for a very long time. And then somewhere down the line, and I really had to educate myself on this, um, they had a difference of opinion on a lot of things. And then there was a lot of moments where she was being very toxic towards him, cussing at him, throwing things at him, um, trying to get back at him for what she felt was disrespectful towards her. And it just looked very messy on her part. And I'm watching this as a viewer. I'm like, this girl is a hot mess right now. What is going on? And so they eventually part ways. And then she is in Atlanta now. Uh, she goes to Atlanta. She goes to L.A. to kind of get more publicity. And currently, um, as of this moment, she is a cast member on Real Housewives of, of Atlanta. And that can't be any good. <laughs> Not only is she, is she a cast member, but she's also, quote unquote, dating um, a 27 year old. I don't know what his job is. I'm not going to say influencer. Fuck that. Um, he is. I don't know what he is, to be honest. I, I don't know if he's trying to be a model or if he's trying to be a podcaster. I don't know what his deal is, but she but he is with her for whatever fame and notoriety he thinks it's going to give him. And he kind of has his own thing going on. And they are apparently a couple. And he's even been seen playing the role of stepdad. Now, with Adam Ali, he went on, um, I think the show was called Unwind with Tasha K. He went on that show to discuss what he's been up to and how he's been dealing with life out after Latoya and trying to uh, make clear uh, of the allegations that Latoya is throwing his way um, and what have you, and just kind of clearing his name. And... <clears throat> I happen to believe what he's saying because based on the receipts that I've seen uh, from LaToya as far as what she has done to him, what she has said about him, and some of the nasty things that she has said about certain people in general, like making fun of a dark-skinned girl because of her having big lips and stuff like that and having um, certain features about her. It's like, hmm, that seems very, very suspect to say the least. So, and mind you, I'm not even going to go into her, into her colors and issues because that's a whole other pod. But, yeah, it seems like she's a very messy individual to deal with. And one of the things that he was describing about her is that 
she was always a troublemaker and how he always had to put out her fires all the time. And he also mentioned how she was always the girl who was looking for fame and wanted to be with a guy who was as famous or more famous. And so she wanted to go to America to find that. And when he was describing that in an interview with Tasha Kay, it reminded me of all the times that I've heard from girls in Toronto who always say that they want to date an American man because they're so bored of Canadian guys. And mind you, when some of these girls say that, and mind you, it's not all girls who say that, but I've heard more than a few say this, and I find that absolutely hilarious. But whenever some of these girls say that they want to find an American man and they're tired of Canadian guys, their definition of Canadian guys are guys who they've dated in the GTA. And they may have dated a guy who was in their high school network, or their college network, or within a 50-kilometer radius even. But they've never crossed over from, like, let's say, Scarborough to Oakville, or from Ajax to Pickering, or from uh, York region over to Burlington to, to go out and date other black guys who may be different. So let's just say you don't like guys from the GTA. All right, whatever. You've dated three or four of them, but apparently they all cast an entire umbrella on the entire Golden Horseshoe, but okay. So do you know how guys from Waterloo operate? Stony Creek, Niagara Falls, Windsor. No, let's step out of the province for a second. How about Winnipeg, Regina, Yellowknife, Calgary, Vancouver, Fort McMurray. Do you see where I'm going with this? You can't say that you're tired of dating Canadian men when your definition of Canadian men are guys that you've only dated within the GTA. <clears throat> and, I, and, I, and I didn't even extend to like upper parts of Ontario, you know, like Thunder Bay and North Bay and what have you, or Algonquin Park, <laughs> just to name a few. So it's like, and sometimes their reason is, oh, I don't want a mission that far to go find a guy that 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 appreciates me and, 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 and all that other stuff. Okay, so you won't go that far to find any guys over there. But you're willing to cross the border. The border. To go find this American lover. And why? Because, oh, well, my friend is dating an American guy. And, and, and she says it's the best thing that's ever happened to her. So if it could happen to her and she liked it, then, then it's going to happen to me. So, are you and your friends all of one thought, one mind, one body? Are you and all your friends a monolith? Are you and your friends all one form of groupthink? Hmm, okay. So, it's not like they'll travel to, like, Buffalo or anywhere close. They'll go to Atlanta or Miami or Houston and be like, Oh my God, this is where it's at. It's like you you just want to date a rapper. Just say you want to date a famous rapper or somebody who knows a famous rapper and just get the shit over with. Don't try and say that, oh, American mans are better than Canadian ones. Oh, my God. You do realize the phrase that some of y'all love to say, niggas ain't shit, was heavily inspired by American men, right? I mean, if niggas, in fact, were not shit, then you would not hear the phrase ever, you are the father. It was a nigga that once said, bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. 
But those are the type of guys that you want to go for. Okay. But anyways, I digress. That alone can be its own pod or your own segment. So I'm just saying going back to going back to uh, Adam Ali when he made that statement about her always wanting to find, you know, somebody um, in America. That's what came to mind immediately when he was saying how she had that grass is greener mentality. <clears throat> and guess what? On on the surface, it looks like she found her her man, her American guy who had the, the greener grass, so to speak. So he goes on her pod and he's being very diplomatic from what I can tell. But then the spiciest thing that he did, in fact, say on on Tasha's pod was um, with regards to her current lover was, oh, um, expose your lover, expose your lover. So when he said that he was referring to the guy that she's currently dating right now, he was basically telling him expose your lover. He wasn't telling him to expose Latoya. He was telling him to expose his boyfriend on the side. So apparently, Latoya's boyfriend, current boyfriend, is bisexual and has a boyfriend on the side. And not only does he have one, but later on, um, I believe... Um, Adam uh, uh, dropped another video, just a personal, a personal video that he did on his own. And this is where he really took the gloves off, called her clout Toya, <laughs> but basically exposed all the conversations, all the text conversations that he had with the new boyfriend, basically, and said, hey, like, expose your boyfriend. And then he also showed the pictures of him and the boyfriend in question as well. So he exposed all the details, all the receipts, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, it just makes his argument seem that much more stronger. And he also emphasized the fact that Latoya doesn't really mess with a lot of family or friends um, that she had back in the day anymore. Or they don't mess with her because she's a completely different person. Or you could argue that maybe she's the person that she's always wanted to be or that she's always been. Now it's just been amplified and it's been exposed. Maybe you never know. Um, but learning all of this, it just lets you know that fame or what you perceive to be as fame, popularity, et cetera, et cetera, it is a very, very complex thing. And if you don't know how to handle it, then it will eat you alive. It will swallow you whole and there will be nowhere to go when everyone is just tired of your shit. And I believe that's what happened to LaToya. She burned a lot of bridges. She got too big for her britches, so to speak. And she basically outcasted everyone or anyone who was ever in her corner at one point in time and wanted to chase this thing called fame. And a lot of people get addicted, like when it comes to social media especially, they get addicted to having the endless amount of likes and followers and the follower to following ratio being dramatically different from one another. They get they get obsessed with that. They get obsessed with having that blue check mark beside their name. They get obsessed with having sponsorships and promoters shouting out their name and stuff like that. Listen, <clears throat> there are people out there who have maybe like, let's say, 50,000 followers on Instagram 
and they live in a dilapidated one-bedroom apartment, and they have mac and cheese for dinner every day with a pot hovering over a radiator to heat up the mac and cheese. This thing that people perceive as fame isn't always what it seems. Now, granted, she's, she was a YouTube partner, so she got paid quite handsomely, possibly, for having, what, maybe, I don't know, maybe she had a million subscribers or something like that, but she definitely got paid through through AdSense. Um, she gets paid, uh, according to Adam, she gets paid 1500 per episode for Love & Hip Hop, which, to me, I think she would have been better off just having her YouTube content. And getting monetization off of that and living off of that. If you already have a million plus subscribers. Mind you, I don't know what the checks look like. I don't know how often the checks come in. Whether it's bi-weekly or weekly or monthly. But I would assume that you're getting paid more than 1500 per month. Or, or sorry, per episode of Love & Hip Hop. And is it a thing where it's monetized? Like, are you getting paid per airing of episode like if it's like that then cool but if it's just 1500 per episode that gets aired it doesn't really seem a lot of money because you're getting paid that let's say you're getting paid let's say love and hip-hop comes out once a week all right once a week and they have let's say 10 episodes per season so you get paid 10 episodes per season all right and and it depends on whether or not you're in every episode. I think that's also a key factor because if you're not in any episode, then why are they going to pay you for being in an episode that you're not even in? So that means that you have to be in every episode. But again, let's just say for the sake of argument, you are in every single episode of Love and Hip Hop. So if that's the case, you get paid fifteen hundred. You times that by ten, and your payout is fifteen thousand dollars. So you're getting paid $15,000 per season of you being in Love and Hip Hop. Mind you, taxes are having even been accounted into this. You know, they got to take a lot of taxes out of that, I imagine. But your your net income, or is it gross income? Either way. But let's just say before taxes, you're getting paid $15,000 per season. That doesn't really sound like a lot. In fact, it doesn't sound like anything that you should be living off of. It really doesn't. I got paid more money working part-time when I was in college. Part-time. This should be your side hustle, if anything. So I kind of believe him when he basically alludes to her hustling backwards. And like he was kind of laughing at her when he said, "Like you really sacrificed everything just so you could get paid fifteen hundred an episode on Real Housewives of Atlanta." Like this is nothing, nothing. You can't make a living off of being, being on love on on well, love and hip hop. It's all the same shit, you know. What I mean, like you can't you can't make a living like this. So I don't know what her end game is. Like I don't know if she's trying to get into movies, if she's trying to get her own series. I have no idea what her end game is, but right now she sounds like a hot mess and it sounds like she's going downhill and she's going down bad. So I don't know what the end goal is for her, but she better figure it out. This guy, on the other hand, Adam, he seems like he has it all figured out. He says he's been invested in multiple businesses. He does his um, 
he does his uh, uh, personal training, uh, but then he emphasized the fact that he's a full time father, which I think is very important, especially when you're having someone of a messy divorce like they're that like, like they've had and what have you. And another thing that he pointed out is the fact that she said that after they all the divorce papers had been signed and what have you, that she wanted to have him on as his as her lover on Real Housewives of Atlanta, and he said hell no, and I respect him for that. Not only that, but there are also stories that I've been told by certain sources. You know who you are. (laughs) Uh, And there are stories of her actually cheating on him. Not with guys in Atlanta. Not or sorry, not just with guys in Atlanta, but guys here in Toronto. And not only just any guys, but they have to be known guys, like known, quote unquote, local celebrities. Um, I can't remember the name of the individual uh, that she said that he had that she had an affair with. Um, I wish I had it up right now, but apparently that was the case. She she slept with other famous YouTubers and social media personalities in the city while they were still married. So she flat out cheated on him and had the audacity to accuse him of cheating. Listen, ladies, all y'all out there who say men ain't trash or men ain't shit or men are trash because of because of the fact that they cheat, or that's not even a fact because not all men cheat. But nonetheless, if that's your allegation as to why you want to say men are trash, then I need you same ladies to give that same energy to Latoya forever. Give that same energy to her, please. Don't stick up for her because she's a fellow woman. Give her that same energy. Keep that same energy alive. But anyways, it sounds like a mess. He seems like he's living his best life. And as long as he focuses on himself, everything will sort itself out. So that's my take on the matter. Agree or disagree? Again, feel free to let me know. And final topic of Trip Talk. This was almost my wankster of the week, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Let's talk about Paul Pierce. For those of you who don't know who Paul Pierce is, Paul Pierce is a retired NBA basketball player, and he had a very fine career, everything considered. Perennial All-Star, All-NBA team member. Um, He won a championship. He's done a lot in his career. He's definitely a Hall of Famer when it's all said and done. Um... And he also transitioned into the role of an NBA analyst for ESPN. Now, he was fired by ESPN because of the fact that he uploaded a video of himself on Instagram where he had a bunch of adult entertainers in the room, um, female adult entertainers who were scantily clad in their uh, bikinis and lingerie and very revealing outfits, whatever you want to call it. Um, and he also was smoking weed on camera and stuff like that, right? So he got fired for that. Now, I was going to give him the wankster of the week simply because of the fact that for somebody who works at ESPN, you can't be doing shit like this because ESPN is owned by Disney. They are owned by the mouse. They are a corporate entity. They will, they will not tolerate anything th- that could damage their brand. You got to remember, this is the same company that fired um, James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, because of a tweet that was made public by some Republican 
a tweet that he made 10 years ago that had some lewd comments in it. And he got fired for it. He eventually got rehired by Disney so that he could be the director of their sequel for Guardians of the Galaxy. But that took a long time. It took literally the cast and crew of that film to petition against it. And they basically said that if he's not back, then they're not coming back. So it took a lot of that in order for that to happen. So there's him. And if we go back to ESPN for a second, they also fired Jamel Hill, who was one of their uh, journalists and analysts who fired who was fired because of the comments that she made about Donald Trump and also about Roger Goodell, who is the commissioner of the NFL for how they treated um, Colin, Colin Kaepernick and just social injustice and what have you. She got fired for talking the truth, for telling the truth about those assholes. But because they're corporate entities, they have to watch who they anger and all that shit. So Pierce should have known that if they if those individuals got fired for those things, then, of course, they're, they're going to come down on him with the hammer for that. Now, a lot of people are arguing whether or not he should have been doing those things in the first place. And I say I have no issue with what he was doing. Listen, he's an adult. Adults will do things like hire sex workers to basically entertain them. If it's just for stripping, for twerking, whatever the case may be, as long as those women are doing it with full consent and they are earning every penny out of their work and they are, I guess, having fun and being part of the moment and all that stuff, then have at it. More power to them, more power to Paul Pierce and his friends for indulging in that behavior. Fine, your adults go do you. But why broadcast it? Why broadcast it? Paul Pierce, you're a grown-ass man. You're in your 40s, fam. This is the type of shit that 20-year-olds do when they're experiencing pussy for the first time in their lives. Or when they want to broadcast it to get validation from the mandem. Or from social media in general. Just to be like, yo, I got gal. I got gal. This is what rappers do regardless of what their age is. In fact... It's different for rappers because, if anything, rappers are encouraged to do that stuff because the mainstream stereotype with rappers is that they're womanizers and so that they have a bunch of women in their music videos and stuff like that. And we've seen it in music videos. So I guess the logic is that we expect to see it on their Instagram live feeds. So I expect a rapper to do this regardless of how old that rapper is. But Paul Pierce is not a rapper. He's an NBA analyst. And so while I have no problem with him indulging in that behavior, I don't I don't care, to be honest. Just don't do it on camera because it makes you look like you're having a midlife crisis. Like smoking your blunt and everything like that with the women in the background, you look like a stereotype. You're rocking an outfit that looks like a one big giant bandana like nigga. What are you doing? Honestly, like I, I can't, I can't with some people. Now, some people are speculating that Paul Pierce was already on his way out from ESPN anyway, and he, he just decided to, you know, expedite the process, so to speak. And if that's the case, then fine, whatever. Um, I don't think Paul Pierce is hurting for money. I think he's got plenty of money. I think he seems like the kind of guy who has invested his money pretty well um, since his playing days have ended. And if anything, he'll be fine. He'll get another gig, whether it's with Barstool or if it's with TNT 
Um, if it's with uh, FS1, he'll be fine. If anything, whatever network is going to pick him up, they're going to wait a while to like let it all blow over. And they'll give it a few months. Maybe, you know, let the season end. Um, and then, you know, come next basketball season, he'll get hired by whomever. Because at the end of the day, the internet is quick to forget, right? They're quick to forget. No matter how much of a blunder you make, uh, depending on how big of a blunder, of course, but no matter how much of a, of a blunder you make, the internet will forget because there's going to be something else that's going to hold their attention. And what Pierce did wasn't that bad. Like having strippers at your house smoking weed with, with your homies and all that, it's not a bad thing to do. And like... I mean, it's besides the point, but weed is weed is legal in California anyway, so he wasn't breaking any laws or, or anything like that. It's just the fact that you had it on camera, you just made yourself look like a claff. Like, I can only imagine what his kids are thinking right now, and it's just like, oh my god, dad, what are you doing? What are you doing? <clears throat> but that's just my take on the matter. I think he'll be fine. I think it was dumb of him to do that, but nonetheless, I think, or just to have it documented, rather. I think it was dumb of him to have it documented and broadcasted, but nonetheless... I think he'll be fine. Uh, but what do you guys think? Was it dumb of him to have a videotaped? Do you think he'll be fine? Again, hit me up on my socials and let me know what you think. And final topic of the week. Or not final topic, rather. Sorry. I'm sorry. Final segment of the week. You guys all know and love it. And we're about to get into it. <clears throat> so with that said, who has entered the shallow walls of the Hall of Shame this week? Who has been crowned the captain of coonery this week. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Wankster of the Week. And this week's Wankster of the Week goes to R&B singer who goes by the name of Summer Walker. Now, she's a relative newcomer in the industry, and she is not somebody who I've actually talked about on my show before. But nonetheless, my Wankster does not discriminate. You know why? Because everybody can get it. And she is getting the wankster because of the fact that she gave birth to a child. And, of course, giving birth is a beautiful thing. I would never give any woman the wankster for that. No, 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 no. It's because of what she decided to name her newborn child, regardless of the gender. But I'm assuming the gender is a girl because of the title that involves it. But she decided to name her child, her newly born child, and I quote, Princess Bubblegum. Let that marinate for a second. Once again, let me reiterate. She, she, <laughs> she named her newly born child, Princess Bubblegum. <sighs> what I don't understand about celebrities. Why do some celebrities feel the need to give their children some stupid names that they know that their children are going to get made fun of and ridiculed for? You're not even giving your children a chance at life. Do you know Michael Jackson name is Kid Blanket? <clears throat> Kanye named one of his children North. 
I mean, north, northwest. Like you named her a a, a compass direction. Wow. Who else? I mean, you could argue Jay Jay Z named his first daughter blue after his favorite color being blue, but blue is is an actual name, so I I will give him the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, my point still stands. Why give your children these names? Why? Why? Princess Bubblegum. Why? I've heard more normal sounding names in comic books. In comic books. I mean, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were named after Renaissance painters. But no, you decided to name your child Princess Bubblegum. There are superhero characters whose, not even their birth names, but their superhero names probably sound more justifiable than Princess Bubblegum. Thor is a more justifiable name if you're into Norse mythology. Or even if you are a Nordic native, I can see that being in a name. Hmm. I I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. I got nothing, y'all. I got nothing. She's getting the wanks. That's it. That's it. I got nothing. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, that is the uh, that is the show for today. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in, as you always do. Uh, always keep it locked on my social media platforms for any news and updates as far as who we may be having on as guests and just following up on the latest and greatest on Cool Radio. Um, you can follow me on multiple platforms at Cool Radio CC. And also follow me at DM underscore cool on similar platforms. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, as for the show, as for the podcast, we are available on SoundCloud. We are available on Spotify. And we are also available on Google Podcasts as well. So make sure you follow the pod on those platforms if you use those as well. And as always... Cool Radio is a division of Cool Click Media and Entertainment, reminding you each and every day that we are out here creating our own legacies. Keep it gravy and wavy. We are out of here. Peace.